0: Well, hello everyone. It is a pleasure to bring the Word of God to you. A uh, happy early Thanksgiving. If you are watching this over Thanksgiving um, week, this is when it's being recorded. Uh, if not, happy post Thanksgiving whenever you're listening to this. I'm actually uh, sharing this lecture with you from El Paso, Texas, where I'm visiting my family. So I'm super excited to just spend some time um, with some family during Thanksgiving and the holidays. And I just um, hope that wherever you are um, this holiday season, that you're uh, able to share it with the people that you love and that also it's a time to just glorify and thank God for what he's done in our lives and what he's doing no matter what's going on in the world around us. We can just be grateful for who God is and what he can, c- continues to do uh, in and through us. Um, so as we get started here, we're going to be in Second Kings and Second Chron- Chronicles today uh, for this week's lesson, but I want to start with some questions. My first question is, do you ever feel like you're living on shaky ground? Uh, do you ever feel like the ground you're standing on is somewhat unstable or wobbly or maybe uncertain? I don't mean the literal ground that we walk on, Um, although if you feel that the ground is shaky beneath you, the literal ground, you might want to check that out uh, (laughs) ASAP, but I mean this figuratively. When you think about the future, when you think about the present times or the world around us, maybe when you think about your own life, the choices that you've made, um, your past, maybe the daily burdens and obstacles that you face, when you face life, do you ever feel a sense of uncertainty, Maybe some anxiety or or fear. Maybe a hint of insecurity or lostness. Maybe you feel like you're wandering. So the reality is life can make us feel that way uh, in many different circumstances. Um, It could be through tragedy, um, unexpected tragedy, or through the daily burdens of life. Maybe it's through the result of our own sin and our poor choices that oftentimes can make us feel like we're lost and wandering, like we don't have a solid foundation. Well, regardless of whatever makes us feel, whatever makes us feel that way, the Bible is clear that only one thing in life is for certain, and that is that God, who is perfect, holy, and just, has made an everlasting promise to us, a sinful people, to draw humanity unto himself. Now, he made what, it's a biblical term, he made what's called a covenant. A covenant is a solemn agreement or promise. He has made a covenant, a promise, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, to bring about blessing for the whole world, but he's also made what's called a new covenant, the new covenant, which is when God reached down into our sinful and broken world through his son, Jesus Christ, and offered us true security, true eternal life, and true rescue from sin and death through Christ's death on the cross and in his resurrection. See, we can trust God's unshakable hand Because he does exactly what he says. He is our solid rock, our solid footing. He is our unshakable ground. And all of that can only be found in him alone. When we find our solid footing in him, we discover a God who's perfect, who's holy, who's compassionate, who's merciful, who's full of grace. And that's what we're going to be studying in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. So if you want to get your Bibles out, Here's a quick outline of what we're going to be reading through uh, today in this week's lesson. The first division, um, so I have two divisions here, um, and this is the way that this lesson is really just broken up. The first division is going to be 2 Kings chapter 6. We start in verse Uh, 8. We're going to go all the way through uh, chapter 11, and that's paralleled with 2 Chronicles chapters 21 through 23. And then we have a second division. That's 2 Kings chapters 12 through 14. And that is paralleled with 2 Chronicles chapters 24 and 25. So there's a lot of content in this week's lesson, tons of content, lots of kings, lots of names to remember. I'm going to try to help summarize each section as best I can. Um, but it's just a helpful outline. And also, if you read this week's lesson, the Second Kings verses and chapters were pretty heavy with names and specific details and content. I found 2 Chronicles, which were just chronicles uh, of what took place here in 2 Kings. It's an account of what happened. Those were just helpful summaries. Those were those chapters were a little shorter, and they provided a little bit more of a helpful summary, in my opinion. Um, so, if you got confused with Second Kings, maybe read through Second Chronicles uh, chapters twenty-one through twenty-five. They help consolidate a little bit and help provide some helpful summaries. So that's our outline for today, and the big idea that we want to draw from is going to be this. This is what we're going to be going for in this week's lesson, and that big idea is that in this uncertain world, in this uncertain world, our covenant-making God calls us to a firm foundation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me say that one more time in this uncertain world, our covenant making God calls us to a firm foundation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's our outline. That's our big idea for today. Let me pray for us. And then we'll dive in to scripture. Lord, um, I come before you, um, today and just ask you to be with us as we read your word to thank you for preserving your word. Lord, these words were written thousands of years ago, but they are just as pertinent and useful and important for us today. God, as we read through some of the violence and some of the confusing verses, would you help us see through to the point, the main point that you want us to draw from through these scriptures? Prepare our hearts, Lord, in what is a difficult passage, and um, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for this time, we just ask your spirit to open our eyes to what you have for us. It's in your son's great name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. All right. Division one. We're starting in 2 Kings chapter six. We're going to be reading verses eight all the way through chapter 11, and that's paralleled with 2 Chronicles chapters 21 through 23, and I'm titling and this um, first section here uh, is titled Preserving Power in Judgment, Preserving Power in Judgment. So as you read through, um, I think this week's lesson, as I mentioned, heavy in content, heavy in detail, lots of reading. Um, however, before we get into maybe the what was to me the most confusing part, which is when they start going through each of the kings and the southern and the northern kingdoms let 's remember where we 've been so we 've been reading about prophets to the northern kingdom of Israel. so if you remember right the two kingdoms right now, this is a portion of god 's people it 's a period of history where god 's people are divided right now it 's not one united israel it 's actually two kingdoms, so the northern kingdom is called the Northern Kingdom of Israel um which is 10 tribes and then the southern kingdom is the southern kingdom of Judah which is two more tribes uh and that is how God's people right now are divided. So we're talking specific we're going to be talking about both kingdoms the north and the south today. Um but specifically uh the northern kingdom of Israel is what we've been reading through um the last few weeks. So um and, and particularly with these two specific prophets. So we have the prophet Elijah Elijah is a prophet in Israel who's been really, was trying to call Israel into repentance through some pretty stark words of conviction and judgment. Um, that was really Elijah's Elijah with a J, that was his ministry to Israel. And the goal of the judgment um, was not just to terrify the people of Israel, but also to call them to repentance, to call them to forsake the worthless idols, uh, the worthless pagan idols. So that was Elijah. Then we have Elisha with an S H, different guy. Um, he was closely associated with Elijah and certainly was Elijah's companion and helper. But Elisha with an S H um, really had this ministry of compassion. Um, you know, Elijah was um, with the J was the the prophet of judgment. Elisha with an S H was the prophet of mercy. The he had a ministry of compassion. Um, you know, specifically with last week, we saw how through Elijah. Um, the Lord cares for everyday people who were suffering, um, or how God steps in and helps people through miraculous ways, but also in the mundane and the everyday. Um, every detail matters to God, right? Every detail of our lives matters to God, and nothing, no matter how big or small or mundane or ordinary, escapes God's care. Uh, so we see that demonstrated through Elisha, and that's where we're where we're at. Here in verse eight of 2 Kings, chapter six. So we start with Elisha, and then we also start with the familiar foes, the Arameans of Israel. They are a common threat to Israel, a common foe. The Arameans also, I uh, believe, some translations have as the Syrians as well. Um, but my my Bible, the New International Version, has the Arameans uh, is the um, is what what my translation calls them. So the so the king of Aram is. Kind of ticked off at this moment. He's pretty angry because every time he finds that every time he tries to attack Israel, Israel anticipates his every move. And it's almost like someone knows every single strategy of the kingdom of Aram and prepares for it and is telling somebody in Israel to prep for it. Of course, we know that's exactly what's happening because Elisha, through the Lord, is being told exactly how Aram is trying to attack Israel, then Israel is able to prepare, and then God is able to deliver Israel. So the king of Aram is angry, and when his uh, advisors tell the king of Aram that actually this is what's happening, Elisha is the one that's telling Israel how to prepare for our strategic uh, missions and our strategic invasions, the king of Aram tries to get Elisha, and he tries to kill Elisha. But, of course, we see God always stepping in and protecting his prophets, protecting his people. And God steps in through Elisha's servant to inform Elisha, uh, who was filled with fear, by the way, when he heard that the king of Aram was after him, informs Elisha um, to to prepare and and to to help protect Elisha from the king of Aram. And it's this incredible discourse that we read here in 2 Kings where um, God actually has has Elisha's servant— um, open his eyes, and Elisha's able, and Elisha's servant is able to see where the king, uh, the king of Aram, and his um, troops are in trying to get Elisha. Um, and it's this incredible discourse: how um, God actually blinds the troops, the king of Aram's troops, um, and leads them to Samaria, which is the capital of Israel. So here come the troops. God actually blinds the troops. The troops are led astray. Diverted away from Elisha and to Samaria, which is the capital of Israel, right into Israel's hands. It's this incredible, amazing moment. And also incredible at this moment. So, God protects Elisha, cares for Elisha, protects Elisha, does not allow the king of Aram to get him. And you'd think in this moment, okay, so God blinds the soldiers. Um, you know, he, um, they, they go into Samaria You'd think this is the moment that Israel sees this and says, all right, this is our time to lay down the hammer. This is our time to get our enemy. Our enemy is in our capital city. This is the time to get them. This is the time to kill them, to wipe them out. And instead, we see this surprising moment of mercy where instead of Elijah commanding Israel to kill all the soldiers, Elijah says, why don't you feed the soldiers? I not you just send them home. What? 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 In what world? Real world scenario does that actually happen? But it happened here. It's a surprising moment of mercy. So, and I think we just have to pause here and just remember that we've been continuing to read about God's justice, and we also are reminded about God's tremendous mercy. And we have to know that God's character is incredibly complex. He is far beyond our understanding. His character never contradicts itself, but it's complex, right? We. No, God is a God of justice and judgment, but he's also a God of perfect mercy and compassion. He's an everlasting God. He is infinite and we are finite. We can't comprehend all of God's character, but we see none of God's character contradicts itself and there are many facets to God's incredible character. So just in a surprising moment of mercy there from 2 Kings, where instead of laying down the hammer and wiping out Israel's enemy, Israel's enemies actually spared and shown mercy, and they're actually fed and sent home. Uh, and it's another way of how God protects his prophet of Elisha. So after this incredible event, we transition to something a little bit different, and it's a time of suffering, and particularly because there is, again, the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, a familiar foe of Israel, has laid siege to Samaria, that same city, that same capital city of uh, uh, Israel, and there is a severe famine in the land because there's a military siege on their capital and there's as you can imagine a famine causes chaos in the kingdom um, people are starving so much so that there's this grotesque story of a woman who admits to eating her own son in Israel because she was starving and so hungry and King Jeram is is the is um, the king of Israel at this moment and he Goes a little bit nuts at hearing this and, you know, experiences some sorrow. And, of course, in try instead of taking responsibility, he decides to take his anger out on Elijah. And once again, Elijah is faced with this situation where someone is trying to get him. So in, in the first few verses, we saw the king of Aram who's trying to kill him. Now we have King Joram of Israel, his own king, who's taking his anger and frustration out on Elisha. But once again, God gives the heads up to Elijah that, that King Joram is after him. And Elijah preps King Jeram and says, Hey, hey, don't kill me. The reality is the famine's gonna end tomorrow. The famine is actually gonna end tomorrow. Which, by the way, is another example of how God continues to care for Israel. Even though they're rebellious and, and, and wandering, God continues to care for his own people. So, quick side note. But, anyways, Elijah tells Jeram, Hey, the, the famine's going to end tomorrow. And not only does the famine end, but the siege ends and the arameans actually flee. And how does that happen? It's this amazing uh circumstance in 2 Kings chapter 7 um where um you know the the arameans are camped outside of Samaria. You know, they're Israel they've created this siege around Samaria. And then God causes the arameans to actually hear like an opposing army. Um so um God creates this noise where it sounds like an impending army is coming to attack the Arameans. And the Arameans are like, oh my gosh, Israel must have partnered with like Egypt or something. And they're coming to get us. And so the Arameans flee. Of course, God engineered that. There were no Egyptians. There was no um, opposing army coming. God actually engineered that moment to get the Arameans to flee. And in that moment, the Arameans leave their tents. They leave their food. They leave their treasure behind. And a few lepers from Samaria actually encounter this, from Israel, encounter these goods. And and they're like, oh my gosh, look, we've got food. We've got treasure. We've got all these things that the Arameans left. But then the lepers are like, you know what? We need to spread the good news. We need to tell others in Israel that we've got some food, that we've got some treasure that the Arameans, Arameans left. So with that, um, it's a, it's an incredible story from 2 Kings 7. God engineers it. God, once again, engineers this miraculous um Moment where he steps in once again and saves the people of Israel, and the people just flood what the Arameans leave behind, and they get their food, they get their treasure, all that good stuff. So, anyways, it's an incredible story of God's deliverance from 2 Kings chapter 7. And again, in 2 Kings chapter 8, we continue to see God's ministry of mercy through Elisha, through the Shunammite woman whom we met last week. And the Shunammite woman um, has her land restored by the prophet Elisha. And it's just a quick note here. I'm not going to go into too much de- detail from second Kings chapter eight, but it's just, again, another demonstration that our God is a, is a God of compassion. He's a God of mercy. He's a God who cares for the big and pro- and small problems. He cares so much that he's going to save his people on a grand scale from opposing armies, but he's also small enough to care for the everyday needs of our, of, of his people. And all of that, once again, has been demonstrated through Elisha's ministry. So after that, after 2 Kings chapter 8, the next couple of chapters is where things get a little confusing. We're introduced to a succession of kings in both Israel and Judah. So once again, we're talking about the divided kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah. So we're going to be flipping from kingdom to kingdom here, and we're just going to be going through each king um, one at a time. And I'm going to, again, as I mentioned, I'm going to provide some spark notes, some helpful summaries real quick as we get into each king. And hopefully that'll be somewhat helpful uh, as there's tons of names, names that sound uh, alike. So bear with me here, but we'll try to summarize each king and the time period that they uh, ruled over in this next section. So let's start, first of all, with a king that's not even in Israel or Judah, but it's an, op- it's an opposing king, and that's Ben-Hadad and Hazael, um, where we read in 2 Kings chapter eight, verses seven through 15. So for reference, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, Israel's foe, he becomes ill. And then Elijah actually prophesies that Ben-Hadad's court official, uh, Hazael, is actually gonna kill him and become king. And we know a tr- when a true prophet of God prophesies, anything that is said by that prophet comes to pass because nothing God says um, is is done without purpose, right? Anything that God says, Will happen, we know, as we've seen through scripture and through prophecy, will happen. That's exactly what happens. Ben-Hadad falls ill, Hazael kills him, suffocates him, and then Hazael becomes king of Aram. So again, that's not part of Judah and Israel, that's Israel's opponent, but that is a king that we read about in this section. So that's, that's a quick note. All right, opposing king, that's the first king that we read about here, Ben-Hadad and Hazael. Hazael kills Ben-Hadad, Hazael becomes now king of Aram, Israel's opponent. Now, we get into each of the kings of Judah and Israel. The first king we read about was 2 Kings chapter 8 verses 16 through 24, that's King Jehoram, who's the king of Judah. So we're going to the south now, the southern kingdom of Judah. We've been talking about Israel, so swing south a little bit, and now we're talking about the king of Judah. Now, what do we know about Jehoram? Again, these are going to be quick summaries. For the, la- for the sake of time, I'm going to try to move through them relatively quickly. So we read Jehoram is a wicked king. He's not a good guy. Jehoram is so bad that he actually kills off all of his brothers. Again, this is 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 16 through 24, if you want to read this for reference. But he kills off all of his brothers so he alone could be king and protect his seat and protect his throne. And by the way, the wickedness of Jehoram is all a consequence of, if you remember a few weeks back, the consequence of an unholy alliance between Jehoshaphat and King Ahab. So Jehoshaphat was a king of Judah. King Ahab was a king of Israel. They made this weird unholy alliance because King Ahab was no good. He was a bad king. Anyways, the li- the apples do not fall too far f- from the tree. They're all bad kings. It was a bad alliance. King Ahab was bad. We're going to see in a moment. All of his kids are pretty bad too. Um, so anyways, Jehoram is just a consequence of all of a succession of really, really bad decisions made by previous Kings. So anyways, Jehoram kills off his brothers. He does evil in the eyes of the Lord. He sends Judah into pagan worship. So they're not even worshiping God, the true God anymore. They're worshiping false gods. And because of that, they're also in these constant military battles. So right now the Southern kingdom of Judah under Jehoram is, um, in constant conflict, it's not peaceful, um, and it's, it's pretty much chaos. And in addition to that, they're also worshiping false gods. All that to say, Jehoram eventually dies a brutal death, and scripture actually says, 2 Kings 8 actually says, nobody mourned his loss. Nobody regretted that he died. That's how bad of a king King Jehoram was. All right, that's the first king that we read about in Israel and Judah. That was the That was Jehoram, king of Judah, the southern kingdom. No good guy, bad guy from 2 Kings 8. Next up, we read, after Jehoram, we read about King Ahaziah. This is, once again, we're still in Judah. We're still in the southern kingdom of Judah. This is 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 25 through 29. We're continuing on in Judah. Was Ah Ahaziah any better? No, he was not. (laughs) Ahaziah was not any better than Jehoram, and he continues to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And um, this, by the way, was not to be confused. A few weeks ago, we read about another King Ahaziah of Israel, which is the northern kingdom. That's a totally different person, totally different king. King Ahaziah, this is a new king. This is the king of Judah, southern kingdom. Anyways, he, uh, King uh, Ahaziah of Judah is allies with King Jeram of Israel um, to fight against um, King Ahaziah. Ah- ah- Goodness gracious! Excuse me. Against King Hazael, um, Hazael, excuse me, King Hazael of um, Aram. So that's just a quick fact and note about Jehoram. Um, bottom line, Ahaziah was a no good king. He was eventually killed, and then we're going to see that again through the through the through the reign of King Jehu, who is next. All right. So we've got Jehoram and Ahaziah. Those are the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. They're no good. They're bad. Quick summary for both of their lives. They're bad kings. They lead their people into pagan worship, military conflict, chaos. They're both brutally killed. No one really mourns their loss. All right, first two kings, right? The third king, King Jehu. Second Kings chapters nine and 10. So we were in the south with King Jehoram and King Ahaziah. Now we're going back up north to King Jehu. So King Jehu is from Israel. He's a king of Israel. So this, we're going back up north to the northern kingdom of Israel. And we see in the opening verses of chapter 9 of 2 Kings that Elijah is the one that anoints Jehu as king of Israel. Uh, and after that, uh, Jehu actually goes to the very land of Naboth's vineyard. If you remember that story from a few weeks ago, Naboth was a good citizen of Israel who King Ahab and and, Queen, and Jezebel steal his land and end up killing him for it. They were bad. They were bad people. They were bad kings. Uh, They were bad uh, royalty. Um, So anyways, Jehu goes to this land and actually kills King Jeram of Israel on this field. And then he goes after King Ahaziah to kill him. So in this portion of scripture, King Jehu is actually an instrument of judgment and justice. So God uses King Jehu to wipe out King Jeram, who was an evil king in Israel, and also to wipe out King Ahaziah, who was also an evil king of Judah. God uses Jehu as an instrument. And then Jehu goes on this killing rampage, basically. And and this killing rampage is also a fulfillment of prophecy because God saw King Ahab and Jezebel as really evil and deceitful people, and he promised to wipe out their family because of their wicked ways. And that prophecy... Is fulfilled through Jehu. So Jehu not only kills King Jeram, brings him to justice, not only does he kill King Ahaziah, but he also goes after the evil Jezebel. And if you remember anything about Jezebel, Jezebel was no good. She was bad. She was brutal. There's finally vengeance and justice here. For all the blood that they shed, their family is totally wiped out. So God is bringing about justice and judgment on this family, through King Jehu. So remember Elisha's anointing Jehu as king. At the same time, he gets a directive and Jehu just goes after these kings and wipes them out. And in addition to that, King Jehu actually even goes so far as to kill the pagan prophets of Baal. Baal was the false god that, that they were worshiping. Um, Jehu kills them too in kind of this deceitful way. And your notes, if you want to read your notes, they bring up an interesting point where they actually quote Hosea chapter one, verse four, which reads, I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. So we might see here that even though Jehu was carrying out God's ultimate plan of judgment on the evil family of King Ahab on the end on the evil kings of Israel— it seems like Jehu went a dad bit too far, and he did not bring about what God was commanding ultimately in a proper mindset, mindset or in a godly way. I mean, he's carrying around justice, but it seems like he went a bit too far, and maybe it was the use of deceit on the prophet's veil, maybe it was the use of too much force. Whatever it was, we just know God did not like the way King Jehu brought about his justice. He wanted, he was, he was happy that justice was done. God was happy that justice was done finally to the family of Ahab for all the blood that they shed, but he still wasn't totally pleased with how Jehu brought it about. So anyways, that's King Jehu um, from second Kings chapters nine and 10. Are you still tracking with me? We're almost done. I promise with this summary, then we get into second Kings chapter 11. And now um, we are reading about more brutality, and this time, again, with the family of Ahab. Ahab's reign and line is still as notorious as ever. We've got the queen mother, um, Athaliah, um, who is the mother of Ahaziah and the daughter of the evil Ahab and Jezebel. So this is Jezebel and Ahab's daughter, the mother of King Ahaziah, Ahaziah, who was just killed by Jehu. Now, Athaliah, the queen mother, goes nuts after she finds out that her son, Ahaziah, was killed by King Jehu. She goes nuts, and she herself goes on a killing rampage, and she decides to protect the throne to wipe out every single member of her family. She's like, kill the kids, kill everyone, kill the children, kill the innocent children. It is brutal, it is horrendous, it's awful. So Athaliah kills most of Judah's royal family, but in this moment, and here's what's important here, if you remember from biblical history the promised Messiah was to come from the line of David. Now, this is a threat, a direct threat to that promise because Athaliah is killing all of the royalty in Judah. And and someone needs to step in, right? Because the, the line of David is threatened to be totally wiped out. And that's where we get... The promised Messiah. That's the line that we get from the promised Messiah. And that's ultimately Jesus' lineage was through the line of David. So, God's salvation comes in a surprising way. God steps in and protects this line, this that David's line, through Jehosheba, Ahaziah's sister, who <clears throat> steps in and secretly saves her nephew Joash from Athaliah by hiding him for six years. Um, so, in this moment, David's line is spared. And God's sovereign plan of bringing about his salvation for Israel and ultimately the world through the line of David is preserved. It's a very significant moment. And in the closing uh, verses here of this first portion of scripture that we're reading in our lesson, we also discover that Judah's leaders, including the priest and including Jehoiada, who is this incredible priest that brings about some reforms in in Judah, crown Joash, he's this little kid, crowns Joash as the true king, because he's in David's line as king of Israel. And in this moment, um, Jehoiada makes a covenant to God. He says that Judah's going to follow after God and the false places of worship to Baal are destroyed. The dangerous and wicked Etheliah is expelled and is killed. And in this moment, we see a reprieve from all the violence and blood. And we start to see maybe Judah's going to turn it towards a path of restoration towards worship of the one true God. All right, that's the first division. Hopefully you tracked for me. We saw the wickedness of kings in both Israel, the northern kingdom, and also the southern kingdom of Judah. We ended in the southern kingdom of Judah, and we also saw some hope, though. We saw some hope that maybe Judah might be turning a corner. That's going to lead us to our first principle here, which is that God wields his preserving power to purify his people and fulfill his promises. God wields his preserving power to purify his people and to fulfill his promises. His promises. All right, this chapter lots of brutal murder, lots of thirst for blood. Unfortunately, heartbreakingly, lots of killing of innocent children, even. I think I find that so grotesque and horrendous, right? To say the least. And I think the question I think all of us have when we read this is why, right? Why this suffering? Why this sin? Why such brutality? Why would God allow this? Uh, The reason as to why God allows suffering and sin to even exist are ultimately mysterious to us, right? But the reality is God uses sin and suffering in this world to bring about his righteous judgment and to bring about his ultimate plans um, and nothing thwarts it, really. So God uses sin and suffering in this world for a specific reason. So if you read this passage of scripture, you have to know that no matter how brutal or violent things got, nothing thwarted God's plan, not even Athaliah's plan to wipe out all of her family, to protect the throne, not even that could have thwart God's plan. God knew that his Messiah would come through the line of David and God protected the line of David even when Athaliah was uh, was going through this killing rampage. So we know the reality of sin and evil and why God allows them is an ultimate mystery to us. But I think we can know a few things and be reminded about a few things that scripture tells us. So first and foremost, I think we can know First of all, even though sin and evil are allowed, sin and evil never have the last word. They never have the last word. God is a perfect and holy God. Now, this brings about some fear and trembling, and it should in all of us, that God is so perfect and holy that he brings about righteous judgment, but it also should give us a confidence that evil will one day have its day in court, that God will one day judge the wicked righteously and perfectly right think of ahab and jezebel rulers of israel that carried out so much bloodshed on innocent citizens of israel and so, and slaughtered so many of god's prophets they had their excuse me they had their day ahab was eventually killed and jezebel was eventually killed right god used jehu to bring about judgment on ahab's family for all of their wickedness and evil and their evil was at times almost unbearable to read, but they had their day and God never allows wickedness to go unpunished. And whether, and sometimes we think, well, sometimes the wicked never get punished, right? They live this life and, and they just, they either don't get caught or people don't care and they're never brought to justice. But we have to know, and we have to have confidence that whether it's in this life or if it's in the next life, sin will be judged and God's perfect holiness and judgment will have the last word. So we have to remember even though sin and evil are allowed, they never have the last word. God ultimately judges sin and evil. Secondly, I think we have to know that no matter the suffering or evil that occur in this life, God's purposes and plans remain. Um so maybe you think about the the evil in the world going around us or maybe Maybe it's personal evil that you're struggling with. Maybe someone's done evil to you. Maybe you've been mistreated. Someone has sinned against you and you get bewildered at just evil in general. You get confused. Why has that been, why was that done to me? Why is there evil in the world? Maybe the poor choices that you made in life have your life spiraling out of control and causing suffering on you and the people around you. But like the reality is sin exists and sin has real consequences, but this, but there is a word of hope. No amount of sin or evil can stop God's purposes and plans. No amount of evil or sin can stop God's purposes and plans. Suffering and sin and not even your poor choices and not even your own sin can ultimately stop God's grand plan to redeem and restore. See, the fact of the matter is, the Lord's ultimate plan for you is for you to be redeemed. It's for you to be restored. It's for you to be made new through Jesus Christ. And nothing on this side of heaven can stop that. Our call is to come to Jesus. Our call there is to be made new through Jesus. So let's remember this. When we get confused as to why God allows um, sin and sinful people to wreak havoc, can we remember that there's, this is, there's also a miracle here too that God allows any of us to remain on this earth. I mean the Bible is clear, especially Romans 1. All of us have fallen short, right? All of us have sinned. None of us have an innate desire to follow God. Actually, our innate desire is to walk away from him and to follow after things um our own passions, our own desires. That's our reality. So the fact that God doesn't wipe this world away in the midst of tremendous evil is also a mystery, a pleasant mystery, I might add. I'm glad that he hasn't wiped all of us off the face of the earth yet. But even that is a grace and a mercy. And better yet, he doesn't just not wipe us off the face of the earth. He actually calls us sinful, rebellious people who have no interest in the ways of God. He calls us to know him through repentance and trust in his son, Jesus. That is a mysterious mercy. So we have the mystery of the reality of sin and suffering and why God allows both to happen, but we also have this mystery of grace and this mystery of mercy. God is, again, a complex God. His character is complex. They never contradict one another. It's mysterious, but he is a God of mystery, but he's also, he's a God of mercy. And let's read a little bit more about that mercy in this next division here. And the second division, as we wrap up here, second division, second Kings chapters 12 through 14, and also parallel to second Chronicles chapters 24 through 25 is preserving power and mercy is what this division is titled, preserving power and mercy. So we read about primarily judgment, um, God's judgment on Israel and Judah. We're also going to read about God's mercy here. Um, and a little bit of judgment as well. So as I mentioned, we get a reprieve of the murder and bloodthirsty wickedness of the first division, and we start to witness this King Joash who's been crowned the true king because he's in the line of David, uh, the true king of Judah, and we see Joash's desire to follow the Lord in 2 Kings chapter 12. And Joash restores the temple, he's heavily influenced by Jehoiada, who's this priest Um, He is um, this incredible man who really does desire to follow the Lord, and as if you remember in that last section, right, he's the one that does the covenant. He's the one that really brings back this reminder to say, hey, remember, God's covenant to us continues through David's line. We got to remember that. Let's get back to following the Lord and worshiping the one true God. Jehoiada is just a great guy. He's a great guy, and he's a great priest, and he actually lives until the amazing old age of 130, but shortly after Jehoiada's death, so we have that brief, brief reprieve, right? We see some goodness. We see some good things happening in Judah. Joash immediately begins to drift away. So Joash who was heavily influenced and mentored by this priest Jehoiada. He leads, he once again falls into idol worship. So much so that Joash even kills Jehoiada's son, Zechariah, for calling him out on his wickedness. I mean, that's how far Joash falls. And it was with as with many of these wicked leaders, Joash again suffers a brutal death. I mean, he started so strong, but he ends his life um, in this brutal way. His own court officials actually turn against him because they killed Jehoiada's son, Zechariah, and they ended up murdering him in his own bed. And his burial was an undignified one. He wasn't even buried in the tombs of the kings. He was buried Apart from that, so it's in even un, it's even an undignified burial. I think something in uh, your notes. I think cover this a little bit, but Joash's devotion to the Lord it seems like was surface level, because in reality, a true heart for God is a heart that's been transformed and humbled. And Joash's heart was not humbled; it wasn't transformed. See, Joash's path started on the right tra- trajectory, but surface reforms and outward worship and obedience don't really change what's inside. In order for one to truly follow God, their heart has to be supernaturally changed. That's the reality. So after that, after Joash, it's a depressing picture. We read 2 Kings chapter 13, and this is Jehoahaz and Jehoash from Second Kings 13. Quick summary here. I won't spend too much time for it because we're already over time a little bit. But both of these kings basically, this is – so that was um, – we were in Judah, right, with, with King Joash. We get back to Israel. So we were in Judah, the, the southern kingdom. We're going to go back to the north in, in Israel. These two kings here, um, King um, Jehoaz and Jehoash, um, do evil in the sight of the Lord. But again, God continues to demonstrate his wickedness and compassion. Even when the wicked Jehoahaz, the king of Israel, calls out to the Lord to, to deliver Israel from their foes, uh, the, uh, Ar, uh, the kingdom of Aram, God listens and God delivers. So even though there's wickedness, God is still stepping in and God is still saving Israel, even in the midst of their wickedness. So um, Jehoahaz and Jehoash, two wicked kings, 2 Kings 13, short and sweet. So we see here that despite Israel's continual rebellion, God continues to step in and provide a way uh, of rescue. Uh, as this section concludes we 're introduced to Amaziah, king of Judah, Jeroboam the second, king of Israel. I think it 's also important to note in this division that we also see the end of the prophet elisha 's life that 's from second kings thirteen verses fourteen through twenty and your notes do a great job of just summarizing what we saw and we 've talked about Elijah um, throughout this lecture, but you know elisha had a life well lived uh, through him. We saw the true heart of God, right, compassionate, full of grace, for the weary, caring. For even the most minute and specific details of our lives. So, um, just this incredible prophet who brought a ministry of mercy uh, to a northern kingdom that was uh, really full of uh, rebellion and walking away. Nevertheless, um, Elijah brings that ministry of mercy um, to Israel. So, with that, I think we conclude here in this last division that with a principle, and that principle is God's unfailing mercy, is the preserving power that upholds his people. God's unfailing mercy is the preserving power that upholds his people. All right, so let's uh, draw back that principle and tie everything together here in the conclusion. Um, So, again, we've talked about a lot of wickedness, a lot of downright evil, right? Entire families being wiped out for the sake of protecting the throne, a thirst for blood, innocent blood, which is horrendous, Um. And I think, you know, though God uses um, evil people to accomplish his purposes, right, we still have that question of why, why does God allow this? And we talked about that a little bit in the first division, how um, even though it's a mystery why God uses sin and suffering or how he allows it, um, we can still see God's purposes moving forward, and we also see his grace and mercy in not wiping all of us out, but rather Instead of just wiping us out, he calls us to himself, regardless of our rebellion and wickedness. He calls us to repentance and reconciliation with him. So even as we talked about that in the first division and the second division, we see a little bit more of God's mercy, but also a form of God's judgment as well. I think there are two verses that underline this conclusion and also tie into this principle of God's mercy. Two verses from this section. The first verse was from Second Kings chapter thirteen, verse twenty-three. And let me read that for you. It says, "But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them because of His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To this day, He has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from His presence." So that's Second Kings thirteen. Here's the second verse that I think was pivotal in this division, and that's Second Kings fourteen, verse twenty-six. The Lord had, had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them, and since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. Okay, so why do I say that these are the most significant verses? Well, let's provide some context, maybe some biblical history as well, um, and and maybe get into maybe why we saw some of the wickedness that we saw in this chapter and then tie that into God's mercy. So, of course, those two verses illustrate God's mercy, but let's take a couple steps back and let's provide some context here. Um, So, when I think about a lot of the violence that we read through in these verses, um, I have to ask, what's the motive? What was the reason as to why there was so much violence? What were the motives behind these kings, these royal families that enacted so much violence? For example, why did Jehoram and Ahaziah do evil in the eyes of the Lord and send their kingdoms into pagan worship? Why did Jehoram kill off his very own brothers when he became king? Um, Why did Jehu really just go overboard on his killing rampage? He was fulfilling God's prophecy, but he just, he went a little overboard and even went to deceiving the prophets of Baal so much so that God didn't really like the attitude and, and the mindset that Jehu took in just having this thirst for blood. Why did um, Athaliah want to kill innocent children, people in her own family, after, her, uh, after the death of her son, Ahaziah? And how about Joash? Why does Joash start so strong and then falter and end up killing the son of his spiritual mentor? I mean, he went so far as to kill Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. How did he start so strong but end up in this way? And I have to think that in so many ways, the underlying motive of this is fear. Um, Don't get me wrong. Sin and rebellion are inherent in all of us. After the fall of mankind in Genesis 3, we do have a sin nature. We have a desire to follow after things that are opposed to God and his will. And sin and rebellion against God primarily are at the root of this. But I think fear plays a part as well in the poor choices and decisions and sinful ways that we walk. Fear makes us do things that don't make sense. For example, a fear of losing the throne causes kings and the queen mother to kill off members of their own family because they become jealous. They become overly protective of their power and authority. Fear of invasion or ha- perhaps fear of being outcasts in the world around them or fear of disappointing people sends Israel and Judah's kings into pagan worship and they lead their people into pagan worship. But I think we have to ask Did they have anything really to fear? Did Judah and Israel truly have anything to ultimately fear? Read over those two verses I just mentioned, right, about God not wanting to wipe out a very rebellious and very sinful Israel. I think if we look at the way Israel has acted the last few weeks, we would say they don't deserve to be a kingdom anymore. They deserve to be absorbed. They uh, uh, deserve to be taken over. They deserve to be invaded. But yet time and time again, we see God stepping in and not allowing that to happen and even stepping in and saying, I actually, my promises remain with you. So we have to ask, does, did Israel and Judah really have anything to fear? Without the context of Genesis, right, or the New Testament, we would say no. They don't deserve to be protected by God. They do not deserve a covenant with God, a solemn promise with God. But with the context of Genesis and the New Testament, we know God's people we're still under a covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that covenant was to preserve, was a promise to preserve them and to bring out bring about the salvation for them and ultimately for the whole world through the Messiah, which of course we know is Jesus Christ. Now imagine if the people of Israel and Judah, if their royal families, if their kings remembered and truly believed that that the God of the universe, no matter what was happening in the world around them, was going to preserve them would protect them, would preserve their people, and would bring about the greatest blessing this world would ever know, which was salvation for mankind. His covenant remained on them, no matter what they did, actually. Can you imagine if they truly absorbed that? Can you imagine if all the kings sat under that and absorbed that and believed that? What, what fear would be left? What power would have, would fear have over them if they believed and remembered that? Why would they worry about keeping their own positions of power and authority? God's covenant would see them through no matter who was in power. And why would they worry about blending into the culture around them or being invaded by surrounding powers when God promised to preserve and protect them? When fears are consoled by God's ironclad covenant that he's made with his people, there's no reason to fear but rather all the reason to find confidence and peace in what God has promised. And as we've seen in this study, as we've seen even in this week, whatever God promises, whatever God says, it will come to pass. It will be what it will be when God says it. So we have to ask ourselves, what are we afraid of? What makes us afraid? If you remember back to my introduction when I talked about you know, living on shaky ground, on unstable ground, what do we... What are we afraid of? What makes, what gives us that feeling of uneasiness, insecurity, shakiness? So, for example, if we're afraid of losing power or prestige, we're going to do anything we can to hold on to that power, even if it means doing something unethical. We saw that in the Kings uh, this past week. If we fear people's opinions of us, we're going to work hard to people please and try to control their opinions of us. If we fear being out of control, we're going to do our best to remain in control, which means manipulating people, trying to manipulate and control our circumstances, anything to give us the life that we're striving for. And if we fear for our financial security or our wealth, we're going to do all that we can to cling on to our finances. Our treasure at that that point won't be in heaven, but our treasure is going to be of this world and we're going to be controlled and dominated by money. If we fear not being satisfied, or emptiness, or missing out, we're going to try to pursue anything and everything that gives us pleasure and makes us feel content. If we fear singleness, or if a life of singleness is something that occupies our mind and our fears, we're going to do anything we can to be in a relationship, even if that means compromising our values and stepping into a relationship that is outside of God's will. Fear makes us do crazy things and by the way i was listening to a podcast this past week that helped inform a lot of these um thoughts so if you if any of these sound a little bit familiar chances are we're listening to the same podcast i have to give that caveat real quick but fear fear makes us do irrational things it made israel and judah do irrational things but i think we have to ask that question again do we have anything to truly fear do we have anything to fear The reality is God has made a covenant with us as well, but this is a new covenant. And in many ways, it's much more realized than that covenant that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because this covenant has already been fulfilled through the life and death of Jesus Christ. The sign of this covenant is the precious blood of Christ that has been poured out for us on the cross, and it was solidified and ratified in his resurrection at the empty tomb. This new covenant makes us sons and daughters of the Most High God. It washes away our sins, completely washes them away, past, present, and future. It gives us a new identity, his identity, to walk confidently in him. And this new covenant gives us security. It gives us true security, true, solid ground to walk on, that we're never going to be snatched from his hands in this life. And in the next, we're going to pass from death to life, from this world to into the everlasting arms of Christ. That's what he promises us in this new covenant. And when we realize fully the reality of this new covenant, those fears that dominate our lives, the fears that drive us to follow after our own ways and make us do irrational things, they become small. They they become pretty insignificant, actually. Because the reality is that um, it shines a light in, into our biggest and most foundational problem, which was separation from God. But that problem's already been dealt with. That problem has already been solved through Jesus Christ. This past week, we read about God's judgment and the reality of evil in our world for a very specific purpose. And instead of growing fearful and weary after reading this, we should run to the arms of Christ, to the one who provides the security and safety we've been looking for. The Lord sees us, the Lord holds us secure in his everlasting covenant that he has made through his son, Jesus Christ. With that, let me pray for us as we wrap up. Lord God, we thank you that you are a covenant-making God. We thank you, Lord, that you make promises with sinful people and you keep those promises. Father God, I just pray that... um, if we're a believer, if we're someone who calls ourselves a follower of Jesus Christ, Lord, that you would remind us of this new covenant that you've made with us, that we are under this new covenant and we are totally free, forgiven. Fear has no place in our lives anymore. Lord, we can trust you in the sure foundation that you've provided for us in this new covenant. And Father God, I pray that if someone's out there listening to this and they would question, they're like, I don't know God that way. I don't know God as a promise-making God. I don't know God as my personal Lord. I don't know him the way you're describing. Father God, I pray that your spirit would just invade their hearts. Lord, that you would open their hearts to you. And Lord, that they would find forgiveness, they would find peace with you through that covenant that you made on the cross. And that covenant is permanent. It is forever. And you call us under, yourself, under you, yourself in this covenant, Lord. I thank you for this time that you've given us. I thank you that you preserve your word. I thank you, Lord, for the promises that you make and the promises that you keep. It's in your son's great name that we pray. Amen.